Uh, so, wow, as many of you know, this is, this is an exciting day in the life of our church, right? Do you know why? Jesus is risen. I mean, it happens to be our first Sunday service as a, as, as a young church family, which, I mean, that's, a, that's an exciting time. That's an exciting moment, like, f- for sure. But, like, more, more importantly than that, we today, this morning, we're celebrating a historic event, the day that Jesus rose from the grave. You see, today, literally billions of, of Christians all around the world are, are, are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, that three days after his death on the cross for our sins, Jesus rose in victory over, over all evil, all sin, and against the sting of death. That is why the resurrection of the Son of God is the single most important event in human history. You see, without the resurrection, without the resurrection, there's no Christianity. There's no Savior, there's no salvation, no forgiveness of sin, no eternal life. Without the resurrection, Jesus has just been reduced to, like, just another guy on this long list of people who are, like, Overall, pretty legendary, but still, like, pretty dead, right? And so, like, to put it more bluntly than that, like, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then the billions upon billions upon billions of people who, who today and throughout history worship Jesus as God are, are, are just gullible fools because they place their ultimate hope for life in a dead guy. The Apostle Paul, who, who wrote the passages of Scripture that, that, that we read this morning, he makes that exact point later on in the chapter when he says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. Your faith is futile if there's no resurrection. And on the other hand, on the other hand, if the doctrine of the resurrection is, is, is true, that he claims victory over evil, sin, and death, then it is without question the most significant, the most amazing, the most beautiful event in all of human history. And that makes it more than worthy of our consideration this morning, right? You see, 1 Corinthians 15 is like this passage that we're reading this morning is one of the primary texts on the resurrection of the Son of God. And so as we dive into these verses, I want us to consider three important points about the resurrection. First, that it is central to the Christian message. Secondly, that it is historically true. And thirdly and lastly, that it it changes everything. If the resurrection is true, then it changes everything. That first point, let's look at it. It is central to the Christian message. Read 1 Corinthians 15 with me, the first few verses. It'll be up on the screen. It says, Paul's writing, and he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. You see, if God truly came down to earth to live in our place, to die for our sins, and to rise from the grave to save generations of people, and to renew like the entire, the entire cosmos, then that news, that event, that historic news should bear weight on the way that we view all things, shouldn't it? You know, if, if you know the gospel, then the question is, have you taken your stand on it? Verse 1, Paul says, this is the gospel in which you stand. So have you taken your stand on it? If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, the question for us is, is this where we stand? You see, everyone in this room, whether you're a believer or not, regardless of your background, like everyone in this room has something that you're standing on. I'm not talking about like your chair or, or, or this room or the ground, right? But we all have something we're standing on, something that defines your, your vantage point. Your worldview. You see, you're standing on some approach. Every single one of us is standing on some approach to right and wrong, to determining what is true, what is good, what is beautiful in this world. Even if you think you're not religious, like you're still by faith operating on some basic set of assumptions or presuppositions to, to how you, however you would define what is good, what is bad, what is true, what is beautiful, and how we should live. You know who's good at creating their own platform to stand on? One person that comes to mind is my two-year-old. <laughs> my two-year-old Geneva, the other day she asked me if she could watch, you know, that Trolls movie? She asked me if she could watch that movie for like the second time in the same morning. And so I said no, um, to which she replied, Dad, it's not good to say no to me. <laughs> She's two years old. Dad, it's not good to say no to me. You see, so, so saying no to her, in her mind, on her platform, like, that's bad, right? That's the platform she stands on. It's a pretty flimsy platform, right? That's what she stands on right now. And so the question is, like, whatever, whatever platform is that you're standing on, your worldview, the way that you view all things, is it good news? Is that what you stand on? Is what you stand on good news? You see, Paul says, let the gospel be the platform that you stand on. He says it's of first importance, which is just his way of saying, look, these are the central teachings of Christianity. These are the basics. This is the core. This is kind of like Christianity 101. And so when Paul, who wrote almost all the New Testament, when, when he says that he's about to give you what's of first importance, then you, then you got to take notes, right? You got to take notes. When the guy who wrote almost all the New Testament says, this is of first importance, you take out your pen and paper and you take notes. He's about to give you the one thing that you can't jack up, the one thing that you cannot ignore and that you must remember. And even if you know, like, all the content of the gospel in your mind, like, he's saying, look, you have to actually live like it's of first importance. If you blow this one, then all bets are off. And so here's what's central, Paul says. Here's what's central. Here's the platform that you should stand on. It begins in verse 3. He says... 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, if you're not a church-going person, then like this, this, this sin talk can sound kind of strange, right? Like this sin talk can sound kind of strange. But Paul says it's of first importance, so, so let, me, let me break it down, all right? Like the most simple yet, 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 yet true definition of sin is that in light of who God is, if you, if you don't consider him ultimate and you consider something else ultimate, like, like that's sin. At its very core, that's what sin is. You see, God's the sovereign creator who not only made all things, but the Bible says that he also sustains all things. He intimately knows everything at both this big macro level, but also at this, this micro level. From the furthest galaxy and supernova to like the smallest atom and, and quark, everything finds its purpose in him and exists for his glory. And so sin is whenever we take something in God's good creation and we elevate it above the good creator. That's what Romans 1 tells us. Sin is whenever we take something in God's good creation and we elevate it above the good creator. And so it's when we say things like, like man, having stuff is what I'm all about, right? It's what drives me. It's the air I breathe. It's the reason I live. I mean, I'm clearly not saying that there's anything wrong with having stuff, right? Like, I happen to have some. <laughs> but what's wrong is when you make things your, your, your sort of source of meaning, your source of meaning and value in the world. You see, we can even do the same thing with, with things like good things, like friendship, marriage, relationships, sex, family, even like church and ministry, when we take good things and make them ultimate things, that's, that's sinning against God. That's falling short of his glory. These are all good things, but they're not ultimate things, right? Like they are given to us by God's grace to be enjoyed and for us to give thanks to him. The Bible teaches, though, that, that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in that way, myself included. And so the Apostle Paul, who's writing this, he says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, see, Paul's telling us that because of the Old Testament. Like, we know because of the Old Testament that, that history had been, like, for, for hundreds and thousands of, of years just kind of foreshadowing and and eagerly sort of like anticipating, anticipating the coming of Jesus who would, who would fix the sin-stained world problem. All throughout the Old Testament, they were eagerly anticipating the Messiah, the coming of Jesus. You see, in the Old Testament, God sort of set into order this, what they call the Levitical system, right? The Day of Atonement, where you have these two lambs with the Levitical priest, you had these two lambs, and one of them would just get stabbed in the throat and drained of its blood. And sorry, like some of you probably didn't know Easter was going to be so gnarly this morning, right? Um, you're like, when do we get to the part with the cute bunnies that lay eggs? Um, but like, no cute bunnies in this book, but there are two lambs, right? 
And so we got two lambs. One gets drained of its blood. The other gets prayed over by a Jewish priest. And then all the sins of Israel were to go on that goat, and they would release it into the wild away from their camp, and they called it a scapegoat. That's where that term comes from. And so the purpose of those Old Testament laws were not to be the end in and of themselves. They were supposed to serve to point forward to Jesus, to God in the flesh, who would have his blood drained and his body carried away with the sins of the world. That's why we call him the Lamb of God, the Savior. You see, this is the good news that, that Paul calls of first importance. This is the good news that Paul calls of first importance. Jesus standing in our place on the cross for our sins. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. Verse 4 says, then he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see, in the Bible, we typically see that the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus were not two separate events, but they're, they're usually described as one kind of singular historical event. You can't divorce the cross of Jesus from the resurrection of Jesus. That's why there's no Jesus hanging on the cross on, 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 the, on the backstage here. He's, he's not there. Right? He's, he's risen. You see, Jesus Christ, unlike anyone else who ever lived, unlike any other religious teacher who ever taught, or any other miracle worker, like Jesus Christ, he conquered death. And that makes him both distinct from and superior to, to anyone who has ever lived and everyone who ever will live. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, Jesus has forced open a door that had been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten death. Everything is different because he has done so. You see, everything is different because of the resurrection. You see, and then Paul supports this claim of the resurrection now with evidence. You see, not only did Jesus rise from the grave, he actually appeared before eyewitnesses. People saw him. They ate with him. It didn't happen in a corner. Like, this was public news, public discussion. And that leads us to our next point, number two. The resurrection is historically true. It is historically true. Verses 5 through 7 says, after his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus appeared to, to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for death. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Here's what Paul's getting at. Paul's saying the gospel is primarily the announcement of a historic event. The gospel is primarily 
the announcement of a historic event. And so when I ask the question out here, like, what is Christianity? Like, what is Christianity? Like, we might be tempted to think, you know, Christianity is primarily about a way of life, right? Or it's primarily about a way we should think. We reduce Christianity to, I go to church and I do good things. But that misses the whole point. And this is the whole point because Christianity isn't primarily about what we do. It's primarily about what Jesus has done. What he has done. Everything about this passage of scripture shows us that. That's why Paul says at the end of our passage in verse 14, he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. It's useless and so is your faith. What do you think of when you hear that word preaching? When you hear that word preaching, it kind of brings up all kinds of different images it can, right? Like maybe you think of a pulpit or, uh, or a Bible or, or, or maybe you think of someone you know that's kind of like self-righteous and preachy, right? Like, oh, I hate it when John gets all like preachy with me. Uh, no offense if your name is John. Um, incidentally, some of my favorite preachers throughout history have the name John. But um, the original Greek word for preaching which is tra- that's translated here as preaching, actually had a u- unique meaning back then. Uh, it's, a, and it's a different sense than, than sort of this didactic sort of teaching that we normally think of when we hear the word preaching. See, the, the, the literal definition of that word, it literally means that which is proclaimed by a herald or public crier. That which is proclaimed by, by a herald or a public crier. Crier. You see, that's how meaningful news was spread in, that, in those days. They didn't, they didn't have news outlets or Google or Twitter, right? They had, these, they had these heralds whose job was to ride into the town square and shout out whatever was the newsworthy events of that day. You see, in, 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 college, I was, uh, uh, in college, I was an editor for uh, our school magazine, and we'd have these talks about what they call hard news versus soft news in journalism. Hard news versus soft news. Like hard news is basically like, like important actual events, important events that, that like actually happened and that everyone needs to know because they, they actually bear weight on our lives. So that would be like having a, we have a new president, our country's at war, a new tax is passed and you got to pay it, right? Like if you, can, if you ignore hard news, it's, it's going to come back at you, right? And soft news is like consumer tips or opinion pieces or, or gossip columns. News that is of no real consequence because it doesn't really bear any weight on the realities that we, we live in, in any practical sense. I saw a headline just yesterday that said, April the giraffe finally gives birth. I'd consider that soft news. <laughs> You see, but, but, but in the first century, in the first century when Paul's letter was written, the only kind of news they had that was ever spread was, was hard news. You wouldn't have the town herald ride into the center of town and say, you know, like, hear ye, hear ye, now, is, now for the fashion portion of our announcement today, right? Like, you didn't have that going on. You only had hard news. Important stuff that bared weight on our lives. An actual event that affects everything. That's the kind of news that these heralds would come with. And so Paul says, look, this, 
This news we have is like that. It's that kind of news. That's why we call it preaching. That's why we use this word. No other religion called their communication with, described their communication with that kind of language. But the early Christians did because they were saying, look, this is something that actually happened. Paul says, look, you can ask Cephas or Peter. You can ask Peter or the 12. Jesus' disciples, they, 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 they had this shameful reputation before the resurrection for being kind of overly fearful and overly timid. Like almost every single one of them abandoned Jesus in his greatest hour of need, in the night that he was led off to die. But after the resurrection, on the other side of the resurrection, these disciples were transformed. They were galvanized into these bold witnesses, these these preachers that spread the hard news of what they'd seen and what they'd heard, even to the point to where many of them died in shame and poverty. Simon Greenleaf, he's he's a professor of law at Harvard, renowned scholar of the rules of legal evidence, he looked at this and he said, it was improbable that they could have persisted in affirming the truths that they have narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead. And had they not know this fact as certainly as they knew any other fact. You see, Paul says, look, just ask any of the 12. Find Peter, track him down, ask any of the 12. You can even ask the other 500 people that saw him at once. See, people don't have hallucinations in crowds that big. They didn't have those kind of parties back then. And Paul says, look, find these guys. Go, go find them. Find those witnesses. They're out there. They're still alive. Find them. Paul didn't say, hey, look, you just need to have blind faith. If you want to follow Jesus, you need to have blind faith. He said, no, find these witnesses. Talk to them. These witnesses, they saw him. They touched him. They sat with him. They ate food with him. They drank wine with him. And that brings us to an important point. You see, Christianity, Christianity is not about blind faith. It's not about blind faith. It's the kind of religion where honest skepticism is truly welcome. Like, seriously, honest skepticism is truly welcome. And so for the record, in our church family, in our church community, like, we value honest inquiries. So if you have any doubts, if you have any kind of hang-ups about Jesus, his resurrection, his church, like, don't be shy. Like, we'd love to talk to you. Seriously, talk to me after. You see, that's a striking contrast between Paul's invitation to his readers and other religions of the day. You see, every prophet of every other religion, they conveniently claim that, like, you know, an apostle or a group of apostles or an angel or someone, like, appeared to only them and made them the head of this new religion. And then they say, look, no one else saw it. I know no one else saw it, but, you know, you just have to trust me. And wildly, people are like, okay, I believe you. You see, someone here might say, but, you know, those, 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 are, those are his friends, right? Like, these are Jesus' friends, so those are his friends, and those 500 people, maybe they're his acquaintances. 
And James, who was named here, he was Jesus' brother. And so, you know, maybe all these people, all these historic people, maybe they made this up and thousands of people were just in on this lie and suffered for it for just no apparent reason, which you got to admit is kind of a pretty big stretch. And so to make his final point, Paul's almost anticipating like the ultimate skeptic in the room And he says, Paul concludes his case for the resurrection by saying, I saw him too. (laughs) He's like, I saw him too. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul persecuted the church of God, and now he's writing this letter to these Christians saying, believe. That leads me to this last point. The resurrection changes everything. If the resurrection is true, if it's true and it is, then it changes everything. You see, Paul wasn't, wasn't, wasn't a friend or a family member of Jesus. He was a cold hearted enemy a cold-hearted enemy of Jesus. He had a deep-seated hatred for Jesus and his followers. You see, the first time we see Paul is actually in the book of Acts when he oversaw the stoning of Stephen, the first recorded deacon. Back then, Paul's name was Saul, and Saul made it his personal mission, his singular personal mission to murder anyone who worshiped the risen Jesus. That is, until, until he saw the risen Jesus. And when Paul saw the resurrected Jesus, then, then, then Saul, his name was Saul back then, he was so radically transformed that God gave him a new name and said, your name's Paul now. Your name's Paul and you work for me. And after seeing the risen Jesus, Paul went from being a murderer of Christians to a pastor of Christians. He went from someone who put Christians to death to someone who who preached hope at their funerals. He went from devoting his life to to destroying Christianity to to surrendering his life to, to spreading it. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, the one that was spreading the good news to all the non Jews. The apostle to the Gentiles. And man, Paul prayed the, paid the price for it. He paid the price for giving his life in service to Jesus. He was made homeless, beaten, on the run, and in prison for a single reason. He would not stop preaching about the resurrection. There are non-Christian historical accounts from the first century that just talk about just the wild ministry of this guy, Paul, who used to work for the government, slaughtering Christians, who was now spreading the message of Christians. People didn't know what to do with him. You see, grace, that kind of grace, the grace that you encounter in the risen Jesus, like Saul did when he became Paul, like we do if we're, we did if we're followers of Jesus, that we see as we're walking through this text, that, that grace that we read of, that, that grace that many of us enjoy, it changes everything. 
It changes everything. Read Paul's words in verse 10 with me. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You see, grace, grace is at the center of the resurrection story. Grace is at the center of the Easter story. You see, we are a people of grace. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, then we, you are a person of grace. Your life is marked by grace. You see, we're all sinners who fall short of God's glory. We don't merit, we don't deserve, we don't earn God's love. Like, none of us can claim a right for God to be kind to us, for him to forgive us, for him to embrace us, endure with us, deliver us into eternal joy and, and, and presence, and his presence. None of us, apart from Jesus, has a claim on any of that. But by grace, by grace, that offer is given freely. It's given freely. It's given liberally. It's all of grace. And all who are saved from death and hell and sin and judgment are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. You see, God not only saves us from our old ways too, he also saves us to a new way of living. He not only saves us from our old ways, he saves us to a new way of life. When we truly believe the gospel and have it serve as the foundation that we stand on, and are centered on, this foundation that we're always, that we're always tethered to, then the, the, then the beauty of Jesus begins to bear weight, not only on, on, on what you think, but on what you love, and how you live. You see, the grace of God, it changes us. It changed Paul and it changes us and it makes us new, new creatures, the Bible calls us. And so that's why we can all say with Paul, if you're a follower of Jesus, by the grace of God, I am what I am. If you love Jesus, if you know him, if you worship him as God, then that is your mantra this morning. By the grace of God, I am what I am. See, this is the good news of the resurrected King Jesus. This is the good news of the resurrected God and Savior. You see, if you're a Christian here this morning, then chances are that any single moment that you actually find yourself angry, anxious, or ashamed, there's a pretty good chance it's because you, you've forgotten the central teachings of the gospel. Or you're not living as though it's of first importance. You've forgotten that it's central, that it changes everything. But when you sit, when you sit in that, when you, when you just marvel, just marvel at the, at the glory and the beauty of Jesus in the gospel, 
being amazed at his life, amazed at his death, amazed about his burial and resurrection, then that changes everything about who you are, about how you think, about how you live and how you view the world and how you view your problems. You see, in light of that gospel, which is of first importance, everything else fades away. Everything else grows dim. You see, King Jesus, the risen King Jesus is a king unlike any other king. He's a king who went to the cross for our sins so that unbelieving sinners like you and me can be happily reunited with God our Father through adoption into his family. But now with death defeated, now with death defeated, through his church, Jesus is now ushering in the kingdom of God. You see, the story's not over, just like it wasn't for Paul. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And then, and then he, he brought the gospel to the Gentiles, right? See, with death defeated, now through his church, Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God. He says, all authority has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. I'm with you to the end of the age. Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God through his church, and he's recreating and renewing the world. You see, he's the king who's advancing his kingdom and renewing all things under his powerful rule and his benevolent reign. If you know that Jesus... If you know this Jesus, the Jesus who's the risen and reigning king, and you're sitting here and, and, and you know that because of him, you're not afraid of evil, not afraid of death, you don't have to be afraid of anything else, then let that resurrection just give you profound, incredible hope and confidence this morning. Let it draw your heart to a Savior who is real, a Savior who is risen and a Savior who right now reigns. Amen? Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you we praise you. We're overwhelmed by you because your grace is truly amazing. It's amazing. It changes us. It bears weight not just in what we should think about you, but how we should live in light of that. It changes us and it changes, and it changes everything. So, Jesus, we thank you for paying it all on the cross in our place for our sins. Holy Spirit, we ask that for those of us who are followers of Jesus this morning, that you would just stoke the flame and stir our affections for you and our, and our praise and thankfulness for your grace 
For those of us that are not followers of Jesus this morning, Holy Spirit, would you draw us to the good news of your grace, the good news of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, and the fact that, that when he rose from the grave, he rose in triumphant victory over all evil, over all sin, and over the sting of death. What a great God you are. What an amazing grace you offer. We thank you. We praise you. And we give you all the glory for this morning and, and every day after. In Jesus' name, amen.